Hey everybody, welcome to season three, episode one of the I Can't Help You podcast. We are back and I'm really happy to be back in the studio. This is the first I Can't Help You that I've recorded since before COVID. Mainly, well, because there's always procrastination and there's always other pieces, but also this is a show that I really like to do in person. I don't like podcasting over Zoom or whatever. And really excited to have our first guest, Taylor Moffat White. Taylor is a very well-known therapist here in Boulder and runs an organization and founded an organization called Humanity Shared. You can learn more about that at humanityshared.com. Taylor and I first met at Alia Preschool, I think, because our kids were the same age and we both have four, well, she has five now, but we both have had a bunch of kids and then went to the same preschool and we kind of got connected then. And then through the years, obviously, we've we've stayed friends. And we've talked about doing this for years now. And we're here and we're doing it. Welcome to the show, Taylor. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And one thing I love about our friendship is that if we say we're going to do it, we'll do it. It could take three or four years. Eventually. But I know exactly. We'll get there. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, let's start kind of from the top. Like, uh, I, I, for those who might not know, talk a little bit about Humanity Shared uh, and kind of what you're doing with retreats and all the different things that, what, what's your vision for Humanity Shared? Uh, my vision always has been to work myself out of a job. And so a few years ago, as I started running embodied leadership trainings, I changed all the trademarks and names in my business because what I really got excited about was helping people find the capacity they have, the possibility that lives in them to lead whether that's in their family, in their neighborhood, in a nonprofit, at a C-suite level, whatever it is, that I believe all humans have the capacity to lead in the simplest way to be an example rather than a warning. Mm. And so Humanity Shared just became an umbrella to host the programming I wanted to offer to people to help them suffer less, as well as to help them learn to manage the suffering that was inevitable so that they could show up more beautifully for themselves and their families. That's awesome. What? Tell me about lead, leaders. That's an interesting word, of course, right? And I think people have images in their mind of what it is to lead. I've always said this to people: you're going to lead somebody. It's whether or not you you want to who you want to lead behind you and what kind of people you want to hang out with. But we're always, in some ways, leading by example, right? Um, but what does lead, leadership mean to you? Like, what talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's probably foreign to a lot of people. What do you mean? I'm a, I'm a leader, you know? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think a lot of people prefer not to see themselves as leaders because it abdicates us of responsibility. It means hopefully people aren't watching me as closely as I think they might be. It means like, oh man, people might really be looking what I'm doing and making some reflections internally about if that lands for them or not. So there's a commitment you have to yourself in being a leader. And so one of the precepts of the leadership training I offer is to say that you must leave yourself in greatness first. Mm. It must be truthful for you. It must mm. be authentic for you. It must resonate, land, and work for you in the moment. Mm. And then the only other part of leading is to leave someone else in their greatest place as best as you can. Mm. To lift them up, to light them up, to help them up, to help them find what they have to bring forth mm. so that they can see how much agency they actually have. Mm. Because in my limited time on this planet of 53 and a half years, I see how much work adulting takes and that we need every adult on board to do their part. And if everybody was leading a little bit more beautifully, I 
can only imagine how incredible it would be to be here. So talk about how you do that in a workshop setting. Like I've seen photos on Instagram of being down in Mexico in these beautiful settings and you'll get people down there. I see, I see yoga is a big part of it. Talk a little bit about what that looks like. Yeah. So for me, we bring people to beautiful places because we're going to take away every creature comfort. We're going to take away their habit of performance and we're trying to help people access authenticity. And in doing so, what we're looking for is to create community and to create a practice of connecting to oneself and connecting to other humans. And so from the fact that we don't start a session without every person in the room, from the fact that we tell leaders that you're not in the room until you speak, there is a way in which we've curated a pathway to help people unlearn, become more aware and drop the performative ways we've all needed to carry out to be adults to actually find a more authentic voice and to find that leadership is not going to come from performance. It's going to come from a more authentic, integrous place. Mm. A lot of, there's a couple of words that we tend to use in Boulder and in certain circles, which means something. And I understand it, but a lot of my listeners are people who don't have a lot of experience in the therapeutic realm or kind of living in Boulder and live in other places. Talk a little bit about embodiment. Like that's, that's a really big word. What, what, what is it to be embodied? Yeah. So, um, I grew up in new England and what I like to say is like my personal experience and that of the community around me was what I would describe as bobbleheads. We very much got super skilled at using our brains. And while our minds are awesome vehicles, and I highly recommend you keep yours because you're going to need it at points. What I found was I didn't actually know how to experience my body from the neck down. Mm. I didn't know what it felt like to be inside my body. I didn't know to be connected to hunger. I didn't know to be connected to being tired. I didn't know to be connected to intuition. I didn't know to be connected to the felt sensation of having feet <laughs> And it seems like such a strange thing, but I would find that as I started to learn and experience embodiment, I was recognizing that 99% of the time I was hanging out of my head, solving, figuring out, analyzing, labeling, judging, thinking. And I didn't know what it was like to actually be in my body, have my mind's eye in my body when I was breathing, when I was feeling anything that was a somatic experience. Yeah. But why? Why is it helpful? What, like, right? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm somebody back east and I'm a bobblehead. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I don't know, living in my head. I don't know. What are they talking about? What, what, what wisdom comes from that? Yeah. So my personal experience and why I started to teach all of these things was I had a tremendous amount of suffering that it turns out was optional because mm. I was just spinning in my head all day, mm. trying to look good, trying to belong, trying to figure it out. And there was very little peace and ease. Mm. And what I experience now as someone who's embodied and what I want to offer other human beings is the opportunity to find that what you are looking for lives in you. And most of the time you will find it in your body below the neck not up in your head as a figure out. I think the other place is that in the suffering that's inevitable in life, loss, grief, disruption, trying to get away from it doesn't work. If, if that worked, I would have, I would have pointed the arrow and, and given us all the shortcuts straight away. And I tried every angle, mm. but learning to be with is again, my experience is that it comes from below your neck and it comes from learning how to be with the physical and emotional suffering that lives in your body rather than where your head wants to understand it. Mm. Yeah. Cause our, 
in my experience, our brains aren't always our best friends, actually. In fact, sometimes really get in the way and tell stories and all sorts of things. But the body, when we learn to listen to it, doesn't generally lie. It's difficult to say, oh, you know, I have something going on in my gut. I can feel it in my gut. And our brain can't just reinterpret that immediately. It's just kind of a sensation level, right? Yeah, and I think what I would also say for those of you who are listening to this is there's a great way to experience this in the moment here and now, which is your body is always in present moment. For example, I just had lunch. If my stomach started to feel hungry, my stomach has no agenda about Mm. whether I had lunch or not. It has no opinion. It has no interpretation. It could care less. But my head might be like, but Taylor, you just had lunch. Why are you hungry? And you shouldn't eat now. And you're going to save your appetite for later. And we go into a whole story. Our body is in present moment, Mm. whereas our head is always in past and future. Mm. So the body is always always looking to set you up for your best experience that's true for you your head is almost always looking to help you fit in and look good and follow the rules that you or the world you've adopted has set up in your mind so can we do a quick and body scan embodiment exercise right here like as if i'm your client just for this moment this is a cheap way of getting therapy totally you know what i mean so no but like let's do that so people at home could do this too so everybody if you're driving maybe if you're driving don't do this yeah just pull over to like a rest area yeah yeah so start by just letting your body be right where it is and start to notice what your breath feels like And the important thing as you're experiencing yourself is you're just being a witness. You're not trying to change anything. So start to notice if your breath is the right amount. And as you put your attention on your breath, you'll find that your breath will work right there with you to give you more or less if that's needed. And then as you notice your breath, begin to notice that your nervous system underneath your skin moves and has energy, similar to what we might say is like miles per hour in a car. So you might note, how's my nervous system moving? How many miles per hour is it going? Pretty fast. Yeah. So you just notice that. And then if any comments or judgments come up, just kind of keep using your breath to keep putting those next to you. I like to put those things all belong, but they go in the passenger seat. They don't need to be in the driver's seat. Mm. They can come with you. So you're just noticing your breath and you're noticing your nervous system. And then you're noticing your feet. Your feet are the farthest place from your mind. You could wiggle them. You could take your shoes off if you're at home. You could really feel them rooting down to this earth below us. And I like to say that life is happening where our feet are. Life is happening where we are in the world, not up in our minds. So you're noticing this breath and this nervous system and your feet. You could make contact with fingers to fingers or your hands somewhere on your body. And then I just ask myself three questions in this place when I do a body scan before I get out of bed. And the first is, who's in there? (laughs) 
And I just get curious of the person that's coming with me in this moment. And then I might ask, what do they need? And then I would ask, what do they want? So what happens for you as you just check in with your breath, check in with your nervous system, find your feet and ask those questions? My mind slows down right away. And I definitely feel my body not. The first judgment that came up is, oh, you're feeling kind of numb. And it's like, just relax and keep breathing. And when I realized I just have a ton of energy in my body, I woke up that way today. I had a really great night's sleep and I was super excited for the day and doing this and some other things. So I experience energy in my body. It's just the energy um, of being here and the excitement that comes through. It feels a little bit like electricity. Yeah. You know, but I definitely noticed my mind slowing down right when the breathing started. Yeah. Great. And so we call that awareness, mm. right? Because we're breathing all the time. Mm. It's just that we're often not aware of it. Mm -hmm. And awareness doesn't want to get mistaken for action. But awareness is what precludes what I would call wise action, right? Mm. Most of us, again, are operating from our to-do list, our thoughts, our shoulds. But that wise action is a place where amazing things happen for us. Mm. And that's also why I might add those questions in of, Who's in there? What do I need or want? So I can start to move myself in a direction that feels powerful and useful and of service mm -hmm. rather than more neurotic and self-involved, self-doubting and perhaps in the wrong direction. Mm. Thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. What are you seeing um, since COVID? Are you, do, do you know, some people see a marked difference in the populations they work with and therapy some people not so much. Now a little bit of time's gone by. Is what 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 is what's your overall impression of working with clients pre-COVID versus now? Yeah, I don't see a tremendous amount of adolescents, but I would say adolescents seem to be the group most impacted by COVID, um, as well as folks who are probably over seventy. Mm. I think that for COVID times, a lot of what I saw older people saying was like, "I was just about to." fill in the blank. And now COVID has stopped me. But what's fascinating is as we're coming out of the height of COVID or whatever we're calling this time in 2023, um, I find those people are now a little bit angry and resentful because it's time to get back in action. Mm -hmm. And I find for adolescents, it's stalled their development. Mm -hmm. I have five children that range from 15 to 23. I've also been a mom of many exchange students. And as I've watched all these kids and their friends in these last few years, I've watched their development just be really disrupted. And I would say on both ends of that spectrum as bookends and everyone in between that COVID caused fear and we're very fear-based creatures. And in fear, we often internalize that and we get into a lot of what I would call self-aggression. Mm. And so I see people being more isolated, more fearful and more self-aggressive. Mm. Yeah. That kind of mirrors my experience with people as well, especially young adults, you know, um, how did you get into all of this? Like, you know, you grew up in New England. What, what, 
how, I mean, my guess is for a lot of us that work in the field, quote unquote, it wasn't usually something from like eight years old. I want to, you know, grow up and be a therapist or, you know, own a program someday. So what, how did you, what was your path like that led you to this moment? Um, well, my parents got divorced when I was an early teenager and they brought me to this male therapist. And I remember thinking during the session, I think I could do this better than he's doing it, <laughs> even though I was like 12. So it was like a little bit ridiculous. Um, but I think that was maybe like the first thought I had that I was, um, I was the stir of trouble by being the truth teller in my family of origin. And that was not highly regarded. Um, I was really a seeker from a young age and all the questions like, why is aunt Maggie always drunk when she comes to dinner was mm. not well received. No, no. And so, um, I learned that to survive my family of origin and to survive the, the community around me, I needed to shut that down. Mm. And so I think that, as I went to that first experience in therapy and as it began to get out in the world, I realized like, uh-oh, I don't know how to shut this down. This is bigger than me. And I was going to go to school in Boston to be a psychiatrist and I was doing um, the things I was supposed to be doing. And I had my first awakening and I just was like stopped in my tracks to be like, I don't even want to be a psychiatrist. Mm. And I... I was really, the doors were blown open on my heart and it was really painful because I thought, how did you even get down the road, like thinking you're going to study this and applying and mm. all of these things. And you ha it hadn't even crossed my mind mm. that I had zero interest. Mm. So at that point I moved to Boulder mm. and I came for a winter to snowboard and bartend, which was really fun and great. And, um, I was running one day in one of the great alleys in, in our little town here. And, um, I just fell on my knees. I didn't trip. No one pushed me. I just fell. And I just heard this sort of message that was like, you cannot go on like this, mm. which was really weird. Cause I'm not like a woo woo elder right, person. I'm actually right. pretty grounded in, yeah. in the here and now I, mm. I do much better in this realm. Mm -hmm. um, but I just had this feeling of like, you can't keep doing it. And it was the beginning of me realizing that I had been a liar and a cheat and a thief and dishonest, mostly with myself, but partially with the rest of the world. And I began to get super curious about how to be radically truthful and radically comfortable in my own skin. And it was such an amazing experience. And I started hearing about how people were suffering with the same ailment that I thought, oh, I actually think this is why I'm here. I'm going to do everything I can while I'm awake on this planet to help people suffer less and be more comfortable in the human that they actually are. Mm. You said another thing that really struck me was just optional suffering. I love that. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Because I imagine some people, I know in my past when I've been at my darkest, the idea that it was optional was like, <clears throat> yeah, but, but, but the, that does resonate with me today, having gone through a lot of different problems. But I can imagine for a lot of people, it's kind of like, what do you mean optional? All these things have happened to me. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So things happen to us, there's no doubt, right? And there's no amount of meditation or mindfulness or therapy that's going to stop cancer or death or things that are just part of life. But I found personally, and what I find working with other humans, is that the optional part are the stories we make up, mm. the hyper-personalization, mm. old almost a paranoia at a point, like this is happening to me, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that there not only is no freedom in that, there's an endless prison time sentence that mm. comes with that, which is, I'm going to keep suffering. So for example, if you are in traffic, as you're listening to this podcast, you might be like, oh, this traffic. And ah. Yeah, that traffic is happening to you. But what I like to say when I'm in traffic is I have two choices. I can like 
grip the wheel and grit my teeth and change lanes and try to text you and say, I'm going to be late for this podcast because of this traffic. And then I can get here and download 20 minutes of why this was so difficult and drag you through my suffering. And now we can all be in suffering. Or I can be like, yep, there's traffic. I don't prefer it. I'm going to put on music and put down the window and and kind of go with what's so. Mm. And so I think that there's so much in life we have no control over. And I think a lot of why we see more anxiety than we've ever seen before, at least in, in my experience, it's because people have the illusion that the more I can control these things from happening, the less anxious I'll feel when it's actually the opposite. I kind of wonder if devices has made that worse too. Because this idea as I'm looking at this thing is that I mean, I kind of can control it. I can like your photo. I could put something up about myself. I can screen what I want to have come in and dismiss what I don't want to see. But then, you know, you put this down and maybe it's raining outside. And I have no control over that. And I see this in Boulder a lot, like, because it's so sunny here all the time. You'll be at the grocery store or whatever, and people say, this weather after it rained for like two days, you know, <laughs> like the weather's happening to me. Yeah. Like somehow the world is conspiring against me to bring bad weather and I just can't deal with it or whatever. But in reality, of course we can deal with it because, you know, rain has been happening forever and you don't have, any, we don't have any control over it, right? And I could do a puzzle or an indoor workout or there's a million different things that I can do. Is that kind of what you're talking about a little bit? Is this with over-personalization, this sort of idea that it's always happening at me kind of a thing? Yeah, because we're the personal lens through which we experience it, right? So to your point, it's a bride's wedding day and she's so sad it's raining, whereas someone else has been trying to get their garden watered well for a month. It's like, woohoo, it's raining, yeah. right? So depending on your perspective, it is happening to you, but how you experience it is part of the work. But to loop back what you're saying about screens, is my observation is that we are wired to be pleasure seekers and discomfort avoiders, mm. period. And that's why if you know better than to run a yellow light, but you still do it, <laughs> most people, I think it's Cheryl Strait that says, every time I did a dumbass thing, I knew it was a dumbass thing right when I was doing it, <laughs> right? Like we're smart. We're, we're not not smart people. But in the smart of drinking our coffee when it's too hot or saying the wrong thing or sleeping with the wrong person or whatever it is, it's not that you didn't know better, but that we are wired to want pleasure and not want to struggle. And so screens just allow us to jump out, jump out, jump out. Louis C.K. has the best piece on this. If you haven't seen it, I think it's with Conan O'Brien about um, how much we have these devices to try to get validation of whether it's people are listening to this podcast and how many of them liked it, or I put up a photo of my family and who liked it, or I'm streaming this and is it telling me the information I want to hear? And so... Developing grit is a thing in life that's really going away. Like mm. when you and I were kids mm. and we'd go to a doctor's appointment, there were magazines from nine months ago that were nothing we were interested in. And that was all there was in the waiting right, room. Right. You were playing with your hands or staring at the wall or you were daydreaming or you were problem solving. But now kids are watching, you know, porn on a two by two inch screen while they're waiting for their pediatric appointment. And so we're not helping ourselves or each other develop this resiliency that lives in us, which is discomfort is a part of life. Mm. Suffering is a part of life. But how we deal with it and navigate it, that's the optional part. Mm. Kind of like there's no comfort in the 
there's no comfort in the growth zone and there's not a lot of growth in the comfort zone. It's sort of like in the times in between, as much as that might suck, right? <laughs> it so. totally sucks. <laughs> but again, if there was a shortcut, you and I would be like, go this way. 100%. We've tried all the shortcuts, I'm combined, pretty sure. But... Combined, we have definitely yeah. tried all of them, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah, and or... so this is it, right? The work that you and I are doing are saying, okay, so here's here's where you are, here's where the suffering is, here how you're going to navigate it more gracefully, more, with more peace and ease. That's all there really is. And as mm. soon as you can and get that, I think life just starts to get tremendously easier. Mm -hmm. And certainly not as burdened with this illusion of control, you know, and, 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 and let's shift to parenting for a minute, because I think in particular for me as a parent, that's, I mean, it's all useful, right? But like as a parent, my reactivity was constantly getting in the way from the time my kids were really little. Yeah. Um, everything from they're cooking in the kitchen and the kitchen's going to burn down, Right. No, they're making bad mac and cheese. And yes, the, the, the pot's going to be all screwed up and whatever, but they're having an experience. That's kind of how I hope to be with my grandchildren, right? But yeah, like, <laughs> And how I am more today, but it's been very hard earned of looking at the reactivity, being with the feelings that are underneath it, having the same feeling like, oh my God, what if they do burn it down? I just want them to be safe, right? But interrupting the process right now isn't as important and having some spaciousness to be able to see that. But it's not always much more comfortable. It's only more comfortable in the sense of, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, no, I'm not going to ruin their day because I'm having some overwhelming feelings or whatever. And this sort of fits into like multiple different areas of life, business owner, everything. It's just, you know, I, I think for me, mental health equals a little more space between the stimulus and response. Really, if I had to just boil it down, it's like the times that I've been at my worst are basically when I didn't have any choice over my reactivity, quote unquote. And I was just like, boom, and I do that because I'm, and then rationalization or whatever. You know, and when you become a little bit more aware, you look around and you go, wow, all of a sudden, like my kids are actually afraid of me. You yeah. know, they're actually afraid of a part of me. And it's like, that was my last intention. That's the last thing I ever wanted. And, um, you know, so I think some of the benefits of doing the quote work, you know, I always try to put that out there for people because in general, it's sort of like, we live in such a fast paced society. It's like, great. Okay. I'll do therapy. I'll go to a workshop. And then it's always going to be, and it's like, you know, in my experience, most of the time, there's some people who have huge spiritual awakenings, but most of the time it's a process. It's a process of a few steps forward, a couple steps back, a few steps forward, a couple steps back. But over the, over time, suddenly you start to go, wow, I'm, I'm, and this has been my experience. I'm actually more comfortable in my skin most of the time. Yeah. Not all the time, yeah. but most of the time. And I have to make less apologies, which I like. Yeah. It's nice not to have to clean up so many messes yes. as you get older. Yeah. 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 I say that to kids all the time. Like, you know, it gets old making apologies all the time and it's not a good feeling and it hurts other people. So what needs to change? What needs to shift? And I think the hardest single thing with people, it seems from my perspective, is to realize that that change, quote unquote, actually is starting, beginning, ending with yourself. It really is in there and the relationships will get better but we have to learn to have the relationship with our body. We have to have a, learn to have a relationship with these feelings, no matter how overwhelming they are, with our impulses, with being human, all of it, you know? And I feel like you've always been really good at that. Like we had coffee one time and you were talking about, uh, we were talking about something and you're basically like, well, one could do this, but then if one did that, like how would that lead to a thing? And there's this like kind of mindful approach to the whole thing where it was like you took the bad out of 
impulse. It's like, of course, the impulse is there, right? People yeah. want to people want to get drunk. People want to lose their inhibitions. People want to have these other pieces. That there's nothing wrong with wanting that, but what is it that you really want? That's right. Because if you get that thing you're really craving, would it actually satisfy and the craving and the itch? No, the ghost gets bigger, and then I want something else, and then mm-hmm. on top of that, and then you know. Well, so. and back to screens, I think all that's also creating is more wanting, right? Like yeah. I press a button and my ass heats up in the car seat. I press a button and my coffee's there. I press a button and the box gets delivered from Amazon this afternoon. It's like we're so used to um, craving and seeking and wanting and we're becoming really a lot sicker because we're wanting more because anything you're wanting that's outside of you is already a problem. Isn't it true? And, and honestly, like life has become easier overall. Overall, life is way, all the things that you just mentioned. Very few things can you not do on a phone. And I have a lot of privilege. I want to acknowledge that it's not easier for everybody, but but everybody does have a cell phone. Sure seems to me. Yes. Like like literally yes. everybody. If you want one, you can have one. It seems, and I'm sure there are stories where that's not the case. Yeah, but largely that's by true. and large that that's really true. So in this time of of things being easier, you and I could have groceries delivered to our homes. You could have it made. It could be there, take out all this other stuff. You don't even have to wait in line at the DMV anymore. You can just kind of do it on your phone. In fact, you don't wait in line anywhere. If you yeah. kind of look around you, and, and so, so this idea that as things have gotten easier and this concept of grit and some of these other things you talk about, isn't it interesting that as it become easier people seem more miserable than ever because it's true it's like making more money you find that the more money you make the more you spend right and so as things get easier it's like if you've ever been in the coffee shop and the computer chip is down to read your credit card it's like anarchy people freak the fuck out people are losing their (laughs) minds and i'm like i've got cash let's let's at least take care of these six people who won't go like homicidal in this coffee shop because again our grit is so low because it's like recently one of my kids got ordered something from Amazon. It was supposed to be two day and they got some messages like a Russian shipping container or something. And it was going to be a week or something. And he almost lost his mind. And I was like, for the love of God, child, like, I don't even know how to explain to you. Like this isn't, this is still 10 times speedier than, I mean, I taped pennies to pieces of paper to get like eight albums sent to me when I was a kid. Remember those? I totally do. Absolutely. I remember those really, really well. Yeah. And so like, we go to research a paper and you had to go to the library and use this Dewey decimal system that I still don't know why the hell we ever learned, but the idea was gratification was delayed. You had to go someplace to get information. That's right. So something happens in that process. I mean, I like it better today for sure, but I think about young people coming up and then we complain about the lack of grit and we complain about these other things and it's like, we've created that. Our society has created that. Which is, I think, why you hear the folks who created, you know, cell phones and the internet. So things are like, yeah, we don't give our kids those devices. We don't recommend them. Yeah. Yeah. There's a reason for it. Right. And so to your point, I think it's like, again, we're not going to hold things back. I think our fantasy as humans is like, let's just not have my ex be on this planet and let's not have this internet be on the planet. Like we're not going to stop the world from happening, but what we want to do is say, how are we going to do this where I'm not so reactive and disrupted and completely disturbed by Mm. what's happening. And Mm. I can work with it in a way that allows my nervous system to stay pretty steady. Mm. I agree. What, um, all right. Psychedelics are big now. Uh, used to, you know, those of us who were, you know, deadheads and other things, it's kind of mind blowing for people who 
have had experience with psychedelics for a long time, yeah. or certainly younger in life, and I'm among those people. Yeah. Um, what is your viewpoint on psychedelics as tool in the therapeutic setting? That is, I'm so glad you brought that up. So I think what's amazing to your point is those of us who grew up in a generation where those were all used recreationally, it's a totally different world. And I think it's amazing that we're looking as always at how do we help people be as functional, well, healthy as possible. And I think what I'm finding super curious is how many people I know in my personal circle who are like, oh, I'm microdosing. They've made up that term. They're, they're getting it from like random sites on the internet. No one's supervising it. And I think, no, you're just using it socially, which is fine, but like name it that, right? Mm-hmm. So, so first of all, I think in a clinical setting is a very different thing than a social setting. I think we're back to one of the the challenges or the the benefit of psychedelics is the same with everything else in life is, is there intentionality, mm-hmm. right? What's my Absolutely. intention of having this journey, this yes. experience, this plant medicine. Yes. And I see for a lot of people, especially like a lot of therapists I know and, and people who have done a lot of work that they're looking to continue growing and serving and that they've kind of hit the edges of the conscious container, we'll call it. And they're looking to see if there's places they can't quite see the blind spots we all have that may not come from doing more continued deep dive work that they've already been doing. Um, I think the thing that I see that I'm curious to look at some of the more longitudinal studies that I think we'll see in the next two to five years is that I have had clients use ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin have really good effects. Like to be honest, I have not had anybody have a negative um, experience or side effect, which is quite remarkable because that's not to be said for SSRIs and other antidepressants and things. However, What we know about psychedelics, to my understanding, is that it gives us the capacity to bypass the default mode network, which is that neurotic part of our brain that thinks about what you're thinking about me, right? And then we have an embodied experience, if you will, about being in our body without that neurotic self-talk. That is phenomenal. What I don't see yet is the the distance that it, it's going to carry people. The folks I know who have been doing it, the need they have had for maintenance sessions has been really high, if not almost 100%. And I think that's also where microdosing comes in. It's essentially we're saying if you take a little bit of psilocybin every day, um, you'll feel better. And I guess what I might say is if you're taking a little bit of psilocybin every day for the rest of your life, you're just drugging yourself, mm. right? But mm. if you're having an experience or a journey... If it's very intentional and you're looking specifically to have an integration experience around, wow, I've really felt in my body these last six hours what it's like to not have this self-critic on my shoulder and how am I going to take that back into everyday life? I think that's amazing. And if we can help people do that, I would say, yes, that would be a a shortcut in some way. Yeah, I I agree. I think it's great for aha and i think it's great for breaking through like you said the embodiment piece so the experience itself dosed properly in the right setting people are going to have an experience and with some intentionality it's going to be there i'm with you though that what scares me about it is when people go all timothy leary about it and everybody needs to dose and turn Mm -hmm. in turn on drop off i don't think i've seen some people that should not take psychedelics. Yeah. There are definitely cases of schizophrenia and a whole bunch of other issues where it's like, hey, we don't know enough yet. Let's see how this plays out. I think overall, to me, it's really just another tool. Now it's a really, really po- powerful tool. Mm-hmm. Maybe the best that's come along for mental health mm-hmm. 
ever, right? Well, exercise is the best that's come along for mental health. And that's a very powerful tool. But to your point, it's like everything we talk about in this podcast today is a tool. Yes. If there was one thing, you and I would have bought it, trademarked it, written the book on it. We'd both be living in like, I don't know, wherever. We'd be like in Maui, not Maui maybe because of the fires, but like (laughs) I would, we would have taken our jet over to Tahiti to stay while the, while the, yeah. And you'd have an elixir and you just put it on here and you smell it. Yeah. And everybody would be snorting it and you'd, everything would be great. But I think that's, that goes back to what you were saying before about we always want there to be this like one and done. Like I saw the therapist for six sessions. I'm done. I saw the trainer for six sessions. I'm done. I ate well for 2022. I'm done. And of course there's always laundry and there's always dishes because most of these things are a practice. Mm. And because of the way we're wired, we need continual integration and reminders. And so I find that the sooner you get comfortable that virtually none of it's a one and done and you're just traveling the same circular labyrinth pathway every day, the more you can relax into life. But I grew up with the latter where it's like you become a, a super fast field hockey player and then you learn Spanish and then you go to this college and like there was never an end the ladders and it was always stressful because it was future oriented. It was never about being in the present moment. There was always somewhere to get to. You were stressed if you were going to get there. And I think a lot of the culture still lives that way. Mm. Like, Oh, just wait till my kids are this age. And Mm. as someone who has kids, the span into adulthood, it's like every age is awesome and every age has its challenges and there's no age that's magic. There's nothing that's magic in this lifetime. It's just not. And so there's magic in the drip drip. It's Mm, like, I never mm. thought I could find magic in a 24 year marriage, but it's pretty amazing to find magic in longitudinal experiences. But for most of us, we're looking for variety by jumping out. Mm. But I think it's Joni Mitchell that has this great thing that says, you know, when you date multiple people, you just keep playing your best stories over and over, falling (laughs) in love with yourself. And I'm like, oh my God, she's totally spot on. Because to stay in this relationship with yourself for a lifetime is to see every cobwebby, dark, icky, gross experience and feeling. But if you can live into that, it's pretty awesome. It is. And, you know, Bruce Tift, Bruce Tift said one time, he said, you know, I think it's in his book too. There's multiple different pathways of spiritual evolution and tools and whatever, but my personal opinion is that in interpersonal relationship, in particular with a significant other, you will have the opportunity (laughs) to be able to use that over and over and over again. And that there's no end, like you're kind of saying, there's no end to that piece. And I think you and I both being married long-term, raising kids, uh, that's been my experience as well, right? Like there's all of these other ups and downs that come with it. And you'll have these moments where it's like, I got to get out of here. Totally. This isn't my life. It's yeah. like a, it's like the talking head sign. This is not my beautiful life. It's <laughs> not my beautiful house. Uh-huh. Um, but that there's something about, you know, I, I think about it often that it, it, it's in relationship that we grow, that I grow. A hundred percent. And there we're back to the grit, right? Like when I first started teaching yoga, it was really interesting. A lot of people kept saying to me, like, what's the ashram I should go to to deepen my practice? I'm like, I'll tell you the mother bleeping ashram. The ashram you need to go to is the one where you have a partner and a pet and a child and a job and a mortgage or rent. And you will have more yoga than you know what to do with. You will have your face ground into the yoga. You will be humbled to your knees because this is the, we're back to the grit piece, right? Yes. Which is if every time I was unhappy for a moment in my marriage, I 
jumped out, I would have been divorced a thousand and fifty times over, right? Right. Or if every time I was overwhelmed and didn't want a parent. I mean, if just in a given day, if you said to me, if you're uncomfortable with adulting, just jump out, I would be jumping out all the time, which is what we do culturally, right? With substances and screens and pornography and perfectionism and workaholism as we jump out of the discomfort and where the growth and aliveness lives is the place we don't want to go, the discomfort. It's so funny you say that because honestly, my life is so boring. My life is like compared to what it used to be like or whatever, (laughs) it's so boring. But like, I mean, look, I'm not enlightened and whatever, but I am actually finding joy these days in folding laundry. I'm actually finding joy in being of service in my family. I've always been of service outside my family. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'd avoid my family to go out here where all you are going to give me a lot of strokes and tell me how smart I am and how great. But then my kids and my wife are like, hey, asshole, you know, yeah. Hello. <laughs> hey, we're all here and you're late or whatever, or you're not showing up the yeah. way that you you seem to show up in, in, in other places. Right. Yep. And so I just think that it, it's. It, it, you know, it's not this, it's not the greatest sell, but the older you get and the more you have tried a whole bunch of other things, there is something to that chopping the wood and carrying the water. It's, there's, it's not sexy at all. No. And it's, it's where there's a whole lot of richness yeah. and fulfillment. Yeah. And I think if you're seeking sexy, you can find it all over the place. It's just that sexy never lasts. You wake up at 6 a.m. and guess what? You look over and sexy's not looking so sexy. No, no. And they have bad breath. And, yeah. You know, all these... And they have all their own problems <laughs> that they brought that they want to start talking about over coffee. And you're right. like, no, no, no. Right. And yesterday we were one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you were the one. Yeah. You completed me. Yeah. And yeah. now today I'm like, mm, I'm complete with this experience. I'm out of here. But let's talk about that because very few people are in long-term relationships, right? Like, I think we're in pretty rare air here. Yeah, we've right? got almost 50. I think we've got 50 plus years between us. Yeah, man, yeah. I've been married 31. We've been together 36. God, that's insane. It's nuts. It's absolutely well, crazy. Well, especially because I know May. And you know May. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if she listens just by that right there. But no, and uh, and then me. We're both a lot. Yeah. We're both a lot. Yeah, like, I we love are both, both your lotness. Thank you. And I love it too, and I'm learning to love it, but- when you have really energetic people with their own minds and the longer you're together, the more you see that those are different and that they have different points of views and want different things. But in the early days, and I think this is true of a lot of couples, I don't know, it certainly was for us. There was a sense of you complete me. There was a sense of who cares what my family of origin thinks. You love me and you accept me as I am. And no one else really sees that. And then you have kids and, and, that attention's going other places, especially for husbands. Like, I don't think this gets enough airplay. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, poor white man, but seriously, poor men, whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. There seldom do we talk about, hey guys, after you have a baby and there is going to be a lot of attention that used to come your way. Yeah. That is going to this kid, as it should be, by the way. Yeah. That's absolutely how it should yeah. be. And it's really hard. And it's hard. And yeah. no one really talks about it. You know, that's, I'm trying to, in my book, I'm trying to approach that a little bit where it's like, okay, look, you know, when it changes like that, don't be surprised if you find yourself feeling sorry for yourself thinking, well, who's there for me? And that, uh, and this idea that we're always in relationship are going to be able to show up for every single thing our partner needs and to be able to be that completing part. I look at it now, like those years early on helped reform parts of how I yeah, felt about myself. They reparented you. Reparented us. We did reparent each other. And then we had to parent our own kids. And then there's like separateness. And then now they're all getting a little bit older and we find ourselves 
wow, okay, we're sort of back to these two people with more lines on our faces and different things. How do we want to approach it now? And it's not entirely conscious like that all the time, but I find that over the long period of time, you start going decades and you look at it, there is a richness and a depth that comes from it that's that's just beyond, you know, that's just, just, just extra. And so I look at so many different times in my life when we could have thrown in the towel or we could have done this, or even I tried to screw it up. Mm-hmm. And I look back now, I'm just like, thank goodness. Yeah. You know, thank goodness. Because like it, it, it is a depth and a richness that's just so much different than anything else I can experience that and my relationship with my kids, same thing, you know? And that's the longevity, right? So I think maybe I learned this at the Buddhist preschool our kids went to, but there's a Buddhist precept that says, you know, when you get in your early twenties, you say to your parents, thank you so much. You did the best you could. I really appreciate it. No hard feelings. You're fired and I'm going to take over. (laughs) And I think what's really interesting is we think we're being super slick Mm -hmm. and we go hire a spouse to complete that job. Right. So it starts off to your point of like, kumbaya, you complete me. We're eating off the same plate. Everything is amazing. And this is the biochemistry that's required to fall in love. Mm. And then the rubber hits the road Mm. of they start to be disruptive. You're disruptive. Children come and are disruptive. And all of a sudden, this spouse who I hired specifically for the sole purpose of healing all my childhood They're not childhood doing their wounds. job. Damn it, they're not. <laughs> and they're not super receptive to me giving them that feedback, <laughs> right? And so we spend a lot. No, sp- they feel guilty about it because it's like, well, if you only knew, right? Yeah. Just like when it comes your way. It's like, but I'm yeah. working and I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Yeah, yeah I mean, we're all just such tender beings mm. and we want more than anything to be seen and mm. to be loved and to be heard. And yet, we really need to learn to do that for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I, I found for myself, it took a lot of years of being in marriage and parenting before I was like, oh, wait a minute, this is an inside job. Mm-hmm. I need to be putting way more effort into me. And I think to your point, one of the things that I find really interesting is parents often want to come in and talk to me about how they're going to be better parents to their kids by doing X, Y, and Z for their kids. And mm-hmm. what I always say is the best parenting you do is do your work. 100%. Take 100% responsibility for your life, own your stuff, and then you can show up completely. And then when you can't show up completely, you can own that too. Mm-hmm. And that is the best thing you give your kids. But mm-hmm. it's much easier to get out over our skis and start managing everyone else, particularly our children. And I find that a lot of adults don't want to look at their stuff and they're quite frightened by it as though somehow if you bury nuclear waste, it's going to go away and not seep into the groundwater. Because here's the thing. The trade-off of taking personal responsibility is we have to let go of blame. Like, I think that that's part of the deal. Just like yeah. you want to learn how to play guitar, you sell your soul to the devil down at the Delta or whatever. If if if, if I want to take, this is my truth anyway, If, if as I take responsibility for my own life, now, most days, these days I do, for the most part. Yeah. I have to give up this blame thing, right? Which is, it would be okay. I would feel okay today if it was sunny outside. If my kids didn't make a mess in the kitchen before I woke up. If my spouse greeted me differently in the morning. I think that that's been the hardest thing to do, but the trade-off with it also is that we start to learn to actually give that to ourselves. That's right. Because I, if we're blaming other people, then what we're not looking at is ourselves. And I think that's this like shame spiral, right? Yeah. Which is essentially if we don't feel enough, then mm-hmm. we get to make everyone else mm-hmm. wrong or bad or better than us or whatever it is that that's why we're going without. Mm-hmm. But if you're going without, you're going without because you're not giving it. It's no one's job. It's no. no one's responsibility. And I always say to my students, no one's coming to 
save you. No. And that's like the most wonderful, awful news that we get to be reminded in daily life of adulthood. But it's exactly what you're saying is blaming or shaming self or others. We have all the research and data you could want. It doesn't work. And it's really difficult to be in gratitude and blaming. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's like you can't be connected and protected, right? Exactly. But as humans, we love this paradoxical behavior. And so we're constantly sticking our fingers in the yeah. Chinese finger trap trying to figure out why it's not working. Yeah. And it's also this thing of like, I can imagine again, someone listening and this kind of talk is new to somebody. It's like this idea of taking responsibility isn't all of a sudden it's like the world's all hunky dory and incense and peppermints and <laughs> shit doesn't happen. In fact, you probably notice more of how crazy you it is. definitely do. You notice your anxiety more, yeah. you notice the suffering more. However, you now have the tools and skills yeah. to go get yourself. And I always say it's sort of like going to get that small version of you and, and thoughtfully walking them back on yeah. a leash and being like, come on, we got this. Yeah. Right. Rather yeah. than a lot of expletives and throwing stuff. Yeah. Well, like Terry real says, it's like, it's important to know that child within, but don't let him drive the car. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean, he's in the back seat. And yeah, you can take say their some. sticky hands off the steering wheel <laughs> and put him in. Yeah, I love that. Put him it's in the passenger line. seat. It it's is. a great line. It's a great line. Well, it's all it's all part of that, I think. And that's what's exciting is that we know it's not sexy. Like the stuff that we were talking about isn't sexy. But peace of mind and feeling better in your own skin and feeling like you have agency is pretty cool. And in addition, it's really hot and sexy when you get to go to Bora Bora with your spouse or you get to go on yeah. a European trip with your kids, but that's a tiny fraction of your life. Right. The truth is most of our life is mm. drip drip. Yes. So the bucket gets full drop by drop. That's the good news. But you want to make peace with like the daily life is folding laundry and yeah. parenting children and yeah. working. Yeah. And if that is not satisfying to you, right. then you're going to want to really look at how you're going to shift that because mm. unless you have a super glamorous celebrity job or you're being flown off in a jet. And I'm going to imagine even that probably runs up into walls pretty quickly. I'd like to try it to see. Yeah. I'd like to sign up yeah. for the experiment. We're free and available for yeah. chaperoning if anyone wants some. Yeah. yeah. Even, or even you don't even have to chaperone. If you just want to loan us your plane. Yeah. That would be great. I think you and I have talked about like that fantasy of giving up adulting for like a weekend, right? To go back and be 25, yes. knowing everything we know now yes. for just like a Friday night to a Sunday at five. Right. And, and not, and you know, you can use all the drugs you want. You can do everything. And it's like, yeah. it's like amnesia. And then you free will hall pass. you'll never remember it after no that. That's the other brief. There's yeah. no consequence. There's no other relationships. <laughs> it didn't even happen. And you just walk into Monday refreshed and back to your life. Sign up for our mailing list if you want that information. <laughs> as soon as it comes out, we will make it available to you. Speaking of mailing lists, so these are the kind of things that people resonate with uh, and want to check out some more of your work. I'm guessing people from anywhere can come to your workshops, right? Yeah, we have people from all over the world. Yeah. You can find everything you're looking for here at humanityshare.com. Same handle for Instagram, Facebook. Twitter, peas in a pocket, all the things that are out there. It's all the same thing. All of it's out there. Yep. And um, for those of you who do not know Taylor, you need to get to know Taylor if you can. Hopefully you got to know her a little bit better through this. I just want to say to you that you've always been one of these people in our community that I felt like a peer, like a peer connection to and a love, a deep love and respect because I see a whole lot of people talking good stuff. I'm one of those two, uh, you know, and teaching good stuff and out there. But then I've also seen you stressed with your kids. This is when we were younger. Uh, and I, and being, being human, you know, just being human. Like I've seen you in the grocery store being a little disheveled. I saw you come in here today. I'm like, I'm a little bit sweaty from working. Like you keep it very real, which I really, really appreciate because I too am not into the whole la la airy fairy. I just don't, I'm not looking for some permanent place. I'm just looking to live on this planet 
in my own skin the best I can and not hurt people, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like basically my goal. So I just respect you a lot. I've always loved it when we've had an opportunity to connect. This is this has been great and um, we'll have you back again, if you will, sometime. It'd be super fun. But yeah, humanityshared.com. Check it out. Um, Want to thank everybody here at Made Life. We're here in the Made Life studio um, producing this. So madelife.com. You can learn more about our creative accelerator programs. You too can come in here and record a podcast if you want. I uh, want to learn a little bit more about AIM. You can look at aimbolder.com and some of the services we offer here. Uh, really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the I Can't Help You podcast. Taylor, any parting shots before we... Well, I think that um, one thing I hope your listeners know is what you have committed your life to is such a palpable felt sense to the change that you're making. And I think you're such an embodied example of how if you get committed to showing up for yourself and the people around you, you will change the world. So I hope people will listen to your podcast and follow your programming because I have just the deepest of respect and appreciation for who you are in the world. And I'm so grateful that the planet threw us in this little corner of Boulder together at the same, same moment in time. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Thanks Thank for you. coming by today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye. See ya.